When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Welcome to today's edition of the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton Show podcast. Thursday edition of Clay and Buck kicks off right now. Everybody, thank you for being with us. I finally made it back to Miami, Clay, after, what was it, 12,000 flights canceled earlier in the week. Uh, things getting a little crazy there. And and lots of people affected by this. What's going on with the FAA? Isn't Mayor Pete Buttigieg supposed to be handling this kind of stuff? Transportation Secretary? doing a heck of a job he's the most infamous uh transportation secretary maybe the only one anyone could even name in recent memory um but we will uh we'll dive into a little bit of what's going on there later on uh we also have a very interesting case in new york city of uh, a man who was defending himself and his girlfriend with a knife who was arrested on the subway this happened he was arrested for stabbing to death a guy that attacked him and his girlfriend and he has just had charges dismissed which is interesting considering the daniel penny case also making its way through the courts we will absolutely discuss that but i think we should hop right into this we got a lot of things to talk about today uh uh senator tim scott presidential candidate will be with us later chris christie not joining today says he doesn't feel well clay will give the benefit of the doubt on this one and just say okay I do believe he was on TV this morning, but if he's really not feeling well, we will gladly have him on next week to answer some questions. How bad would you have to feel to not do a 15-minute radio interview? Really, really sick. Like, no voice problem. I think short of no voice, it's probably inexcusable. So, But look, benefit of the doubt, because we're gentlemen. We're just going to, it's not, we don't think he's ducking us here. This is a, you know, a great opportunity for any Republican presidential contender. For any you know, candidate. Yeah. I mean, our audience is so big. RFK Jr., I mean, like, why would yeah. you not want to talk to this audience? So, a little strange. I just want to tell you, because we promoted it, and we did have him booked, and he's backed out. He's claiming health reasons, and, you know, may, maybe. So, we're, okay, we, we're just going to, we're going to take this one this time as the rain check, and we should be having him on the next week or two. All right, the big story today, by far, huge breaking news 
from just the last uh, two hours or so is that affirmative action in college admissions has been resoundingly ruled unconstitutional, a violation of the Equal Protection Clause, a 6-3 decision coming down. I was uh, ripping through it, speed reading as fast as I could today when this thing came out. And uh, the Democrats are obviously very upset about this. Joe Biden, I believe, is going to speak about this decision today. Yes, President Biden is going to give remarks at 1230 Eastern. So at the bottom of this hour, he may be addressing everyone, Clay. Uh, it's it's pretty straightforward when you read. And I, I'm very curious to hear your, your take on this. I would say that one of the first times that I realized um, that the left just makes up things and, and is dishonest uh, early on in my political formulation was on affirmative action as a high school kid. I saw I had the Asian kids in my class. I went to a technically like a school for the gifted. I had Asian kids in my class who were like, you know, geniuses in their respective uh, fields of, of study. And they were having very different college lists and very different admissions from some of the other minorities in the class who we knew were much lower down in this in the uh, uh, class rankings by GPA. And that was when you say, hold on, why is this fair? It's not fair, obviously. The whole thing is not fair. Um, and we can get into it. I mean, for you, what was the single? For me, there was there was a line eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it that was from the majority opinion yeah what stood out to me is and and there's not going to be i don't think a vast amount of attention on this because it's always characterized these cases are as if it's you know white black really this is about asian discrimination and here's what stood out to me there is a penalty of around 140 SAT points on an Asian applicant to an elite college. That is, you get substantial detraction based on being Asian when it comes to admission. And if you are Hispanic, you get a 130-point bonus on average. And if you are black, you get a 310-point bonus. And here's another stat fact that is out there before we get into the actual reasoning and everything else associated with it. Well, two more things, Buck, I would say. One, um, here is a stat. This is from Greg Price, Harvard's Affirmative Action Policies. And I'm reading from his tweet. A black student in the 40th percentile of their academic index was more likely to get in than an Asian student in the 100th percentile. I mean, think about how crazy that is. Black students in the 50th percentile are more likely to get in than white students at the very top. And then additionally, you're going to see all sorts of craziness, including, as you mentioned, Joe Biden speaking at 1230 Eastern about 20 minutes from now. Huge majorities in the United States believe this Supreme Court decision is the right one. Buck, 74% of Americans believe that race should not be used as a factor in public college and university admissions, including 60% of Democrats, 70, what is it, 75% of independents, and 88% of Republicans. And you'll remember, because we talked about this on the program, the state of California overwhelmingly rejected the return of affirmative action in the 2022 midterms by massive majorities 
So while you're going to see a lot of left-wing activism reacting to this, it's actually a decision that the vast majority of the American public, uh, Republican, Democrat, and Independent, agree with. And this, to me, is is indicative, Buck, of how often the talking points of uh, left-wing policy are super far left-wing um, when it comes to what they are saying. It doesn't even reflect what the majority of the party believes. Justice uh, Roberts, writing uh, for the majority, had a real piece-by-piece demolition of this. Uh, there's there's the what, what I would argue are the very purely almost legal formalism uh, aspects of this or or the mechanistic well stare decisis this was previously decided there's some of this back and forth and then there's just the what's really going on here component of it like what's actually happening um and on the what's actually happening both they lose on both counts the pro affirmative action side of this and i read as much of sotomayor's dissent as i could stomach um but the how this is implemented in practice versus what they said it would be that's where the, that's when you realize the whole thing is is a scam for one, they rely on a precedent that says um, that there would be an, no need for this in 25 years. They were arguing that they should have uh, a few more years of this, four more years of this, as if that would somehow address anything. Right? That was yeah, one right. of the uh, one of the ways the pro affirmative action side was was going at this. Um, the diversity benefits to an education. I mean, this is something that you would put on a slide at some kind of. Uh, you know, HR meeting or something, you'd say, well, what does that even mean? It means nothing. It can't be measured. So when they say that it has to have strict scrutiny applied, which is very specific legal tests for why you would be able to take race into account at all, strict scrutiny on the uh, applied so that you can then meet the educational benefits of diversity. What is that? It mean, it's meaningless. I mean, this is meaningless. And when you start to look at it, it becomes even more absurd. Uh, the categories are overbroad. It's another thing they brought up. I mean, the, that they treat for the purposes of admission. Everyone should understand this. If you are a, an immigrant kid from South Korea whose parents arrive here and speak no English, you are treated the same way as, if for, for the purposes of admission, as a Pakistani, uh, you know, kid who maybe has parents who have like founded some company is worth a billion dollars. Doesn't matter. Asian and Asian. Very far away, very different cultures, yeah. very different backgrounds and different ethnicities, but Asian is Asian, which is, th- th- that's why this whole thing really fell apart. I mean, you brought this up on the Asian side of it, relies on stereotyping, which is also true. Oh, if you're black, you'll bring this to the conversation. If you're Asian, you'll bring that to the conversation. That's absurd. You can't make these determinations. And then the fact that it was negatively used against some, these were kind of the main that they, they said, oh, it's not that we take it against you that you're asian we're just going to give more points to black and hispanic applicants well it's zero sum yeah what it does is it presumes that you are a perfect representation of your race on a socioeconomic basis we all know that for instance barack obama and uh, michelle obama's kids are far more advantaged than almost anybody white black asian or hispanic in the country yet they would count as black and be given tremendous advantages for purposes of admissions. I, I would say, Buck, um, so if if I were, if they gave me a magic wand, right, and they said, hey, how would you handle college admissions? I do think there should be some element of consideration for socioeconomic status, right? It is, I believe, 
harder for someone from the the lowest quartile, right, the the, the bottom twenty five percent of income, to rise to the level of getting into Harvard than it is to somebody from the ninetieth some odd percentile. And in fact, if you go look, for instance, at Ivy League uh, data buck, overwhelmingly. Ivy League institutions are made up of super wealthy people, no matter who their uh, uh, what their background is. Right, there are a lot of black kids walking around at Harvard whose moms and dads are doctors and lawyers, yet they get a benefit because of their race. I do think there is socioeconomic lack of opportunity in this country. Right, it is harder to rise. This is factual. It is harder to rise from the bottom ten ten uh, percent to get into Harvard or any other elite academic institution i think that could be taken into consideration i also i don't know what you think about this i actually wish that and and would support uh eliminating legacy admissions um i understand people out there who argue for it i don't think just because your mom or dad got into a school that you should get a substantial benefit. in my opinion that you should get a substantial benefit because your mom or dad went there um and uh that obviously goes on in a big way uh, I don't think that makes sense either. I just wish we had, in many ways, as meritocratic of a system as we possibly could. I also think we focus, and I'm curious what you would say about this, way too much on where people go to college. And and I'll say this as somebody who went through it. You went, We went to elite schools. But by the time you're out of your 20s, no where you went to college has no impact whatsoever on your success once you're out of your 20s. So I, I really mean this, and I I, I say this, um, with with the uh, reflection, this sort of self understanding, and which you bring to this as well. Of yeah, we both went to institutions that were supposed to be able to help us and elevate us in the job market, et, et cetera. Um, I when I went to the CIA, I mean, I was working along people who a, a lot of them came from uh, state schools. A lot yeah. of them came from uh, programs where they had to do, you know, extra. St- we had a lot of, uh, obviously a lot of veterans also who did later in life study, finished their degrees later on. My, my point here just being, there's many ways to get there. Um, uh, there's yeah. many options. There's many pathways. And uh, I think that the value of the elite degree, the quote unquote elite degree is much less than it once was. I also think that because so many people are getting four year degrees, the notion that it is inherently, and this takes us to the, uh, student loan issue, right? That all these people are told you need to get a college degree or else you'll never have the kind of earnings you should have. It's not true. There are a lot of people that, you know, when, when you say, when I, I think Clay, there's a little bit of a, oh, but we should talk more about trade school and the left will say, oh, you know, the right wingers don't really take that seriously. Yeah. Like everyone should learn to be, you know, an air conditioning repair man or something. It's like skilled electricians make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, right? And don't have 150 grand of college debt or, or whatever it may be. You know, people that can do some of the trades and grow and there's always the managerial track. I mean, there's just a lot of ways to get there without necessarily having the, the stamp of some of these more, um, elite schools. And I, I think that that's going to continue. I think in part because these schools are also less serious institutions than they used to be. Honestly, they're just not, they're hard to get into, but they're kind of like a social club once you're there. It's kind of a it's kind of a joke for a lot of people once you're actually into the school. We're approaching a hundred employees at Outkick. I'm not sure that I know where anybody that we have hired went to school. I'm, I'm just using that as an example. I think it matters when you're 22 or 23 and you're trying to get your first job. Uh, it doesn't matter at all after that first job. 
And um, I, I think that is... Uh, I, we need to have a big discussion. I think this is a big, big deal, this ruling. But I think the implications and what the colleges and universities are going to do going forward is also a big Can I make a prediction? We can come back to it. The uh, admitted numbers of the preferred or elevated minorities in this process will not change. And they will not change because they will just continue to do what they do. They'll just find another way to do it so that it's harder to track what they're doing in the admissions process. I think that's true. And sadly, I think it's likely that many of these standardized admission tests are going to be done away with because they'll say that yeah. they are reinforcing the They're, uh, they're going to make it optional racism. Play. And then there's going to be this uh, wink and a nod of, well, you don't have to submit your SATs. But that other guy, if he wants in, he's going to have to submit his SATs. That's what I see coming. You've heard us talk about our friend Dutch Mendenhall. He's the co-founder and CEO of Rad Diversified. You can add the word author to his credentials. His new book is called Money Shackles. What are money shackles? These shackles represent the financial hamstrings that Americans have fought with. Go to school, get in debt, buy a car, get in debt. He believes it's the wrong thoughts, wrong teachings. In his book, he'll give you strategies to use debt to your advantage and tap into lucrative alternative investment vehicles to redefine your American dream. Dutch is on a mission to be at the forefront of the greatest financial change in American history and look beyond Wall Street and see the future of alternative investments. It's now no longer just available to the super rich. Get ready for the redefined American dream with money shackles. Learn more at therad.com. That's T-H-E-R-A-D.com. Break free from your money shackles. Visit therad.com. Learn and laugh. Weekdays with Clay Travis and Buck Sexton. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. 
This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome back in. Hour number two, Thursday edition, Clay Travis, Buck Sexton Show. We know that a lot of you out there all over the country, hey, maybe you're starting your July 4th celebration a little bit early. Monday and Tuesday, a lot of people not going to be working. Maybe you are gearing up for a trip. If that is you... Why not go ahead and do a couple of things? Download the iHeartRadio app. You can take this show with you anywhere, no matter where you are around the world. Same thing could be true. Hey, search out Clay Travis, Buck Sexton. Go sign up for the podcast. Tens, what are we, like 20 million or something uh, downloads a month coming in the uh, Clay and Buck podcast. If you want to make sure that you can take this show anywhere with you, as well as get a lot of unique podcast podcasts. opportunities that aren't found elsewhere we're building out a great podcast network involving other people it is absolutely fantastic i encourage all of you uh to get out there um and make sure that you do both those things okay buck uh we're continuing to talk by the way about uh, the decision from the supreme court just about three hours ago to end the affirmative action the use of race as part of college and university admissions Having really interesting conversations there, 800-282-2882. We've also discussed legacy admissions, the meritocracy in general. How do the schools actually do at educating people? In other words, how much of your success in life is attributable to where you went? Would you agree with that, Buck, that that, you don't have kids yet? But I think the number one sales pitch of a university is, and tell me if you agree or disagree with this idea, The university sells the idea that if you come here, you will be more efficient and more successful in life than you would be if you didn't. And the more elite the university is, the more they sell the idea that your future life will be more successful as a function of the four years that you would have spent in an undergrad institution there. That's basically the essence of why you would be willing to pay seventy five dollars or $80,000 a year to go to these schools, right? Yeah, and and I think... A vast majority of cases of the of these different schools, it, it's just not true. If you're a hardworking, industrious, smart person, you'll do well wherever it is that you go. They used to be real door openers. You know, there's like on campus recruiting, and and if if you went to the right school, I mean, I can tell you, my, in my I don't know if you had a different experience. Nobody ever cared where I went to school. The alumni network never lifted a finger for me. <laughs> I remember I I was encouraged by my uh, we had kind of a you know, career guidance counselor um, and encouraged to write letters to alumni in different industries I was interested in, like actual old school, write a letter like, hey, I didn't even get a response. I think I wrote 10 yeah. letters. Like no one even responded, which was good. It, I realized like, okay, so that was all a scam. There's no alumni network that's going to help me or whatever, but it's all right. I wanted to go work the CIA anyway, so it didn't really make much difference to me. Um, but at the time, I, I saw this a lot, and, and I think that, uh, you know, Clay – the the value of these degrees is going down because ultimately this is an arms race. Ultimately, this is inherently competitive, which gets lost in this conversation. You know, Harvard talks about, oh, we need like holistic and the the benefits of diversity. People go to Harvard because 95% of the people who apply to Harvard don't get in. 
Yeah. So they're very happy to tell a lot of, they're very happy to crush a lot of people's dreams. And as we saw in this case, a lot of like Asian kids who are geniuses dreams, yes. very happy to tell them you don't get to go to Harvard because we think that there's something more important than the excellence you've shown academically. The whole thing is premised on how hard is it to get in because then that becomes how valuable is this in the marketplace, the job marketplace when you graduate and what does this mean? The the value of a Yale, why won't Yale ever change its name? Yale is named for a slave trader, everybody. Yep. Yale will never, ever, ever change its name as a university because you go there so that when you're at a cocktail party or a job interview, you go, well, as a Yale man, and everyone goes, ooh. But here's my point. I don't think everyone goes, ooh, anymore. I yeah. think that people less and less think that this stuff really even matters. Clay, I got into Ivy League business uh, MBA programs. I didn't do it. I went to work for Glenn instead. So I sit here as somebody who went through this. Now, you could say, well, I went to undergrad. Yeah, but what I realized was that I know plenty of people that get these MBAs because they think, oh, it's going to open all these doors and be amazing. Maybe. It's all very situational. It's not some golden ticket to this amazing future. And that's, to, to your point, what the promise is for all these kids is if you get in, it's going to be such an easier life for you. No, for a lot of people going to the, you know, sometimes it's better to be on the, on the, uh, you know, the, the other team, the practice team, so you can get better and better. And then, you know, life is a long game. I, I just feel like people need to stop yeah. thinking that. It's interesting, Buck. GW was probably the worst school that I got into, but they gave me an academic scholarship. And there are a lot of kids out there right now who, let's say you live in Georgia. The University of Georgia has an incredible honors college. You might get into Emory. You might get into Vanderbilt. You might get into Duke. I bet the education that you're going to get in the honors college at Georgia is every bit as good. You asked a good question. You said, hey, I don't think that I got a single benefit from going to George Washington University. I I, I mean, and I'm not trying to take a shot at GW. It's a great school in D.C. If your kids just got in and you're like, ah, I'm so excited. In the Northeast, just, I'll tell you, it's considered a, like a rich kid school. So because well, it was it the most expensive school is, in the country. And, you it know, is it's certainly a super rich kid school. And those rich kids help pay for my scholarship. So I thank them for that. Yeah. Right. That's they charge a lot. Uh, but uh, D.C. is a fabulous place to go. All these things. I will say grad school, Vanderbilt University Law School. I do think in my experience where you go to law school, the alumni networks are very helpful in getting you those initial jobs when you come out of law school because they have on-campus interviews. I think Vanderbilt University Law School, I met my wife there. It's the best three years of my life I've ever spent. I can't speak highly enough about it. But I also think a lot of people come out of law school they have so much debt, Buck. They have to go, you know this, your sister's in a big firm. Like, the big yeah. firm lifestyle is not conducive to people being like, this is amazing. You work 80 hours a week. You basically are chained to your desk. Much of that time is spent trying to pay off of your existing law school loans. You aren't doing, for the most part, high-level intellectual work. It's a lot of grunt work. There are worse jobs. I'm not saying it. But I do think this idea gets sold to kids um, that that is oftentimes not reflective. And look what I did. I went into media and ended up, you know, completely doing something different. Right. I mean, I was going to say, I, I remember at, at Amherst where, where I went, um, they there was all this on-campus recruiting. And it was really overwhelmingly in two fields. Because you got to remember, this is 2004. So it's pre-Great Recession. And, you yeah. know, it was investment banking and management consulting. 
go work for Goldman, go work for McKinsey. That was kind of or some variation of of you know those firms out there, you know, JP Morgan or whatever. And those are sweatshops out there for people who don't know what investment banking jobs are for young kids. They well, are we'll brutal. See, well, see, this is what I was going to tell everybody. Of the people I knew who did that, um, and and a lot of my my uh, graduating class went to those places. Almost none of them stayed in those fields. Yeah. Almost none of them. I mean, at this point, I mean, one out of one out of twenty, one out of thirty, maybe, are still working. And and I mean, I'm not just talking about at that firm. I mean, in that business, I yeah. had a friend. Who got out, went into finance, and he opened, he, he got into the restaurant business. I had another friend who got out, went into finance, and then he went. So now people will argue, they'll say, well, it's a huge benefit to your resume to go to one of those fancy places. It helps you go other places. But the point is that this, this, uh, the, the way that career fields work now, you and I are both examples of this in, in, in sort of both different and similar respects is that you, you figure out which, where you have opportunity, where you want to be, what you think you're good at, and you move and maneuver. The spend 30 years at the company and be a company man and retire. And that's, that's just much less common these days anyway. So that, that, that whole notion is, I think, is changing very rapidly. Um, and you know, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Let me say this too. This is a good email I just got from one of our listeners, Carl. He said, I have to disagree with your statement that a university degree doesn't matter after your first job. I'm 60 years old and my association and degrees from Texas A&M help me, help me regularly in my business. Otherwise, you and Buck have a great show. It's a good point I should bring up. I do think, Buck, you were mentioning athletics <laughs> I like, earlier. I like, though, otherwise good show. I'll take yeah, it. Yeah. I'll take it. Okay. You're totally wrong, on which I respect. You're totally wrong on this. I will say, if you have a strong association with your alumni group, and sometimes that can be, hey, we are all monster fans of, and I bet this guy is a big Texas A&M fighting Aggie fan, and you go back to games all the time, and your network is very much connected in yeah. that way, that can have a long-term impact in a super positive way um, where it's not necessarily, though, the degree. It's basically the fraternity and relationships that you have with all of these people. And if you are a diehard fan of a sports team, it is true that you may look at some of those initial applications when they come in and be like, oh, this person went to my favorite school, and you may be more likely to respond to it. Yeah. I don't think anybody ever saw me go to GW and was like, oh, i got to give this kid a job. Now, I went straight to law school. Again, I'm not trying to take a shot at GW because I don't want somebody – inevitably, people that are out there buck right now, they're like, you know, little Susie or little Johnny just graduated from high school, and the family's ecstatic, and they're going to be paying X number of dollars and everything – I think it's the individual. That that's my ultimate takeaway. It is, but you can also get a great education. We we live in an era with the the democratization of education and your ability to be an autodidact of a, of a really high caliber is leaps and bounds beyond what it ever used to be. I don't even think that many people know um, whether it's you know, Khan Academy or you know there there are a whole series of. Yale. I mean, I've, I've How about our friends at Hillsdale yeah. who put out incredible programming all Thank the time you. that you can yes, go check free out. Program. I mean, it's, it, that's free. Yeah. But that's, but that's what I mean. You can, you have access to whole university lecture series and, and their reading list if you want, which any of you have been to university know that's basically what college is. You go to yeah. lectures, you do some papers, you have exams, rinse, repeat. That's what it is. So it's, it's all out there. You can get. An excellent, uh, you can get an excellent, excellent education at, at so many of these places. They all have the resources and the basics, 
um, to put it in place for you. But I, I think that people are going to be changing a lot of their their view here. That you know, it, it, I'll tell you, growing up in New York City, Clay, it's if you didn't get into an Ivy or something similar. Oh man, everyone's like, oh, that's that's rough. You know, Northeast a, is obsessed with schools, obsessed with this stuff. Almost no it, other part is, of the country is. You know, and and everyone can point out, well, yeah, Stanford's not an Ivy, Duke's not an Ivy, etc. Those are amazing schools uh, in terms of the you know the difficulty of getting in. But I I think that it's changed. I think the whole system has changed, and it's changed in part because of legacy admissions, athletic recruiting, affirmative action. There are reasons that people get into these schools that aren't. That they're such amazing. I wouldn't even say that you know it's a, it's about how it's not about how smart somebody is, but how well did they perform academically in high school? There are a lot of people who didn't perform very well academically in high school who went to these places, right? I mean, that's you know, I mean, I think uh, famously Jared Kushner was like dead last in his class in high school. Went to Harvard. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, I will. I will say this too, Buck. The best argument I think you can make is one that Carl kind of hit on. I think the peer group, to the extent that you pay for your peer group, being surrounded by super smart people, I think you learn more outside of college oftentimes than you do in the classroom. And certainly the relationships that you make with the classmates that you meet there ends up being the most valuable aspect, I would say, of college or law school or any graduate uh, degree that you would get. Uh, but it's just such a fascinating um such a fascinating debate and discussion, I think, in general, that's all tied in with what the Supreme Court did today. You feel the effects of inflation every day, whether you're at the gas station, supermarket, or even just buying a cup of coffee. If you're a homeowner, you're likely feeling it with every repair. We tend to pay a lot for our bills these days. Guess what we do with a credit card? That means you know, U.S. consumer debt levels are up over a trillion dollars in the last 12 months, the biggest increase in two decades. If you're a homeowner, there's a way out if you are finding yourself under some of that crippling debt load, sometimes 23, 24, 25% or more a year. They'll put together a, pan, a plan to pay off high interest credit card debt, create meaningful savings for you every month. They're saving homeowners $1,000 a month, closing in as fast as 10 days time. You can take advantage of this. Call American Financing. Uh, they have a salary-based mortgage consultant today, 7,000 positive Google reviews, cost you nothing to get started. And if you get started today, you could possibly delay two mortgage payments, giving you even greater savings up front. Call American Financing today. The number, 800-777-8109. That's 800-777-8109. You can also visit AmericanFinancing.net. NMLS 1823-4, NMLSConsumerAccess.org. From the front lines of truth, Clay Travis and Buck Sexton. Third hour of Clay and Buck kicks off right now. We are joined by Republican Senator and presidential candidate Tim Scott. Senator Scott, good to have you back on the program, sir. Well, thank you very much. Thank you both for having me back. I'm excited to be back. So we want to talk to you, obviously, about the race and and all of that, um, you know, in a moment here, how it's going, running for president and all that. But I did want to start, if I could, with your reaction to the Supreme Court ruling today on admissions and the use of race as a factor. What what are your biggest takeaways, Senator? I think the biggest takeaway for me is that progress in America is palpable. 
we can literally feel the progress in the air. I thank God Almighty that the story of America is not the story of an original sin. It is a story of redemption. We see that playing out every single day as we continue to strive towards a more perfect union. And frankly, today is better than yesterday. This year is better than last year. This decade is better than last decade. So judging people on the content of their character, not the color of their skin, is what I consider being an American. No doubt. And and so when you actually look at this, there are overwhelming majorities of Americans who agree with you. Uh, we were talking about that earlier in the program. Even a majority of Democrats, and certainly I'm sure you've seen the vote that happened in California in 2022, yeah. which shot down affirmative action as well. Why do you think the far left wing of the Democrat Party has so taken over that argument on their behalf when it doesn't even represent what their own party believes? Yeah, one of the things that we have to get uh, uncomfortable with, we need to be uncomfortable with the fact that the Democrats and the radical left are willing to use weaponized race as a weapon for power, not thinking about progress. And why I say we need to be uncomfortable is that conservatives, specifically conservatives like myself, we need to be stepping out and speaking up about the importance of the American journey. The left continue to look in the rearview mirror of life and look for ways to bring up our painful past and to posit to the American people that this is our future. The good news is that the people in California reject that premise and the entire nation rejects that premise. Can we measure progress or must we resign ourselves to living in the past? Americans have decided we're going to live in the future and in the present, not in the past. And let me just say this. I understand the importance of progress in a, from a racial perspective. It's one of the reasons why I celebrate the progress that we have seen in this country. My grandfather's America is very different than my mother's America. And my mother's America just improved so much for my America. The good news is we are serious about perfecting this union. But the Democrats and, the, frankly, the radical left, they're so drunk on power. They're so interested in control that they sometimes weaponize very sensitive issues of race or gender and say, you can't be black if you don't vote for a Democrat. You can't be a woman if you don't vote for a Democrat. That's just a lie. We're speaking to Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. He's running for president. And, Senator, with that in mind, wanted to ask you, um, you know, there, there are a bunch of different candidates now on the Republican side, but Donald Trump is far out ahead in, in the polls, uh, certainly all the national polls. Um, why are you the best candidate in this race, in this competition? You know, I mean, you're a guy that your Republican colleagues uh, have a tremendous amount of respect for, and, and I think... Uh, your story about just your vision of America is very, very compelling. But why are you, Senator, the best option to be the next commander-in-chief and, and president of the United States? Well, number one, I think I'm the most likely candidate to beat Joe Biden in the field today, according to polls and other information. Number two, I believe America can do for anyone what she has done for me. It's one of the things that we found out on the campaign trail is that people are hungry for an optimistic, positive message with a backbone 
and anchored in the conservative principles that have truly revolutionized what it meant to be good and what it represents for human flourishing. I have had the good privilege of starting off on the wrong side of the proverbial tracks, and because of the America that we love, we've been able to cross that track and live my American dream. In order for that to happen for the next generation, we have to restore hope, creative opportunities, and protect the America that we love. That starts with our southern border. I will say without any question, I've worked on legislation as a legislator, and I would sign it as president to stop the flow of fentanyl across our southern border, leading to the deaths of 70,000 Americans. I would freeze the assets of the Mexican cartels and make sure that they cease to exist as an existential threat to more than 70,000 Americans. We're talking to Senator Tim Scott. Senator, you've gotten ripped quite a lot. I think the last time we had you on, The View had come after you. I saw Barack Obama basically taking shots at you, too, the former president. What did you think about that? Well, the highest compliment that a Republican can get when they, when they pull out former President Obama, the most popular figure in the Democrat construct, to attack me for being too positive, for being unrealistic about what America can do for poor kids in this country especially poor minority kids. The good news is the truth of my life disrupts their narrative and disproves their lies. He came out because as my numbers continue to increase, as my visibility becomes stronger, people see me as the most likely candidate to beat Joe Biden, and they want to stop me in my tracks. So I look at it as a high compliment that they're bringing out their best and their brightest. Senator Scott, what would be the the centerpiece, you will, or perhaps the uh, the central message of the economy that you'd preside over as president if you were able to win? Well, number one, we would do everything that Joe Biden has done. We would do exactly the opposite, to be honest with you. His decisions, print and spend $4 trillion, led to 16% inflation, followed by... 10 rate increases, 500 basis points, a loss of spending power for the average American family of $10,000 in less than two years. I would do exactly the opposite. I would turn the spigot off. We would stop printing and spending money. We would stop thinking of ourselves as a nation that can extend more benefits to these current Americans at the expense of future Americans. We would start igniting our energy economy by, by signing on the first day the XL Keystone Pipeline. Second, we would allow for the leases that would be used today to extract energy from our own soil so that we're no longer begging tyrants and dictators and bullies for oil and gas. We would do it ourselves in America. We would lower taxes because Biden increased those taxes. We would make permanent the tax cuts from 2017 that expire in 2025, $2 trillion of tax cuts. We would make those permanent, and we would make sure that every child in every zip code has quality education so that they are a contributing factor to the greatest economy in the world and not someone who needs us to spend money on their resource, on them. Building on that last part, 
We talk a lot about college and university. Everybody has a choice about where they go to a college or university, assuming that they can get admitted. You can apply lots of different places. Why do you think so many Democrats who put their own kids in private schools, who have the resources to move to different school districts, oppose school choice for poor kids? The word that comes to my mind is hypocrisy. <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure a better word to use than that one. But let's just, you said it so well. These are the same folks who believe in Pell Grants for private schools, for any college in the country, and yet they'll deny Pell Grants for K through 12, and without having a successful and effective K through 12 education, you never become eligible for the Pell Grants for college. Why not arm every single parent with a choice so their kids have the best chance for success in life? I believe that this is the moral issue of our generation, equipping American children with quality education to compete in a global competition. Senator Scott, what is your feeling on the Biden administration approach to uh, the the war in Ukraine? And what would you want to do as commander in chief if assuming when you took that role, the war was still going on? What should U.S. policy be in Ukraine? Well, one thing. President Biden has not been able to articulate to the American people why we're in Ukraine. The frustration that we feel in this country today is based in large part because of the failure and the weakness of President Biden. The first thing we should do is tell the American people what is America's national vital interest in Ukraine. And it starts with degrading and decimating the Russian military. That is in our homeland's best interest, and it is also in our NATO partnership's best interest. It keeps our soldiers safe. And if we can decimate the Russian military by using our resources with accountability, we never write a blank check anywhere in this world. We provide resources, we have accountability, we make sure the dollars are spent responsibly, but we eliminate our adversaries as often as possible or we cripple their ability to put American lives in jeopardy. We also recognize the fact that the new axis of evil that is rising includes Putin, President Xi, and Iran. In order for us to continue not only degrading and decimating the Russian military, but sending the clearest sign to President Xi in China that we will stand shoulder to shoulder with our ally Taiwan, one of the best ways to do that is by decimating the Russian military today. Senator Scott, um, last question for you. Buck mentioned Donald Trump is leading. A lot of our listeners right now would actually love for you to be Donald Trump's vice president. I know you don't start to run for president to be vice president, but it's impossible not to look at all of the legal uh, shenanigans that are involved right now with Donald Trump, whether it's in Miami, whether it's in New York City, maybe more to come. What do you think a President Tim Scott should do if they try to put Donald Trump in prison? What is the right response in your mind to that that potential, potential outcome? 
I can tell you what, what I've already done in the past, and this is what you can expect from, from my administration. When they told me that President Trump was guilty in a phone call, in a collusion, I was the first person, according to President Trump himself, to say that he was innocent. Not that he just didn't do something wrong, but he was innocent. I look at the facts and drew the only conclusion that someone could draw at that time. I would do it again. But more importantly, what we've seen today is this Department of Justice being weaponized against a political opponent. That is unethical, immoral, unacceptable, and un-American. We need a Department of Justice that we can have confidence in. I would fire Merrick Garland because America fired Joe Biden, and that would also fire Christopher Wray. That would give us an opportunity to restore confidence and integrity in the Department of Justice and then make good, solid decisions that we would apply to all Americans and not the decisions that we're seeing today that led to the weaponizing of the Department of Justice against political opponents, against pro-life activists, and as they called them, Parents, we call them parents, they call them domestic terrorists because they had the gall to show up at a school board meeting because they love their kids. This Department of Justice has to go, and it takes new leadership for us to get there. Senator Scott, I know I said last question, how many games are the Gamecocks going to win? We're about 10 weeks away from the kickoff of college football season. Second most important question you could ask me today. Eight, eight and four. <laughs> <laughs> Eight and four. All right, Shane Beamer, he's got things rolling there. Appreciate it, sir. Look forward to seeing you out on the trail somewhere. Appreciate you making the time. Yes, sir. America is the first nation in history founded on the idea of natural God-given rights and on the political principles of liberty, equality, and limited government. It's written into our Declaration of Independence. That's why our friends at Hillsdale College want you to join a large group of Americans in remembering our founding principles on our nation's birthday this July 4th. You can do so by taking these simple steps. The first is visiting this website, Clay and Buck, for Hillsdale.com. Second, sign a pledge to read the declaration this coming Tuesday, July 4th, either on your own or with family and friends. If we're going to save our country in its current crisis, we need to remind ourselves, our children, and our fellow citizens of the founding principles that are the source of America's greatness. And when you sign your pledge today, you'll receive a free commemorative copy of the Declaration of Independence from our friends at Hillsdale College. So visit Clay and Buck for Hillsdale.com right now. That's Clay and Buck for Hillsdale.com. Clay Travis and Buck Sexton. Voices of sanity in an insane world. More than a movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm gonna talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. The warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast just left new york city back down in florida and i can tell you that among everybody that i was seeing in the city uh, the topic of crime and specifically the safety of the subways or lack thereof it's on everyone's minds uh you just constantly have people who are expressing their dismay that whether it's walking through crowded areas of the city just in the street in broad daylight or or more specifically getting on a subway, there are concerns uh, about being harassed, about having somebody expose themselves to you, about having uh, somebody rob you, attack you. I mean, it's, it's a constant anxiety that lingers day in and day out in New York City. And we've seen a couple of cases now where something has happened uh, on the subway, and you right now have very different outcomes. Let's start with Daniel Penny. Daniel Penny, as we know, who's a Marine who uh, stepped in when Jordan Neely was shouting uh, threats and abuse at people on the subway. He put his arms around around his neck. He tried to take him down. He took him down to the ground. Another man, a, a black man, helped Penny try to restrain Neely as he was uh, going into something of a, a hysterical state. And unfortunately, Neely uh, passed away despite the efforts that uh, Penny and others went through to get him medical attention and, and to revive him. Uh, Penny is facing 19 years in prison, as we know, to this day. He's raised some money for his defense, uh, but he's facing a very serious criminal trial. Uh, a, there's another story. Uh, 20-year-old Jordan Williams. Now, Jordan Williams... On the 13th of June, just a couple of weeks ago, this happened, was on the subway system as well. And he was with his girlfriend and a man came up to him, started a a some kind of a, a squabble with him. De Victor Wodreago, uh, Udreago, I don't I think that's how you say his name. They and they had an, an exchange and. Uh, Mr. Udreago, uh, both punched 
the uh, the defend or now no longer defended. He's he's walking free. Punched Jordan Williams and punched his girlfriend. Now Jordan and I think tried to choke her too is what I read. So he put his hands on both of them, assaulted both of them. There are multiple eyewitnesses to this, and there's also video. Uh, yeah, Wodrago w- w- was choking Williams and punched his girlfriend. And then Jordan Williams, um, Jordan Williams, just we'll, we'll discuss the, the some of the aspects of this in specifics. Jordan Williams is black. Um, I I don't know if if uh, Wodrago, um, I don't know what, I haven't seen a photo of him. But anyway, Williams um, defended himself with a knife and he killed Wodrago. And initially, he was charged with uh, with the manslaughter claim. Those charges have been dropped by the district attorney in New York, and so he is now walking free. Now, I would argue um, that this is the right decision that Jordan Williams that if somebody attacks you on a subway, and not only attacks you, but then punches a you know your female companion, your girlfriend, wife, girlfriend, whatever it may be, in the face. That at that point, you got to do what you got to do to defend yourself. You don't have to wait to see if this person produces a knife first. You don't have to wait to see if he. So I stand with Jordan Williams on this one. I think Jordan Williams was right to defend himself, had the basic human God given right to defend himself and, and his loved one in this situation. But I just have to say, it's a lot of people, Clay, looking at this, they're pointing out, well, Daniel Penny steps in. Doesn't use uh, a knife. Doesn't use that level of, of deadly force. He's trying to de-escalate a situation by wrestling. You know, if he wanted to, he could have. He was bigger and stronger than nearly. He could have punched him out. Could have taken him to the ground and you know tried to mash his face in. Um, but instead, he took him to the ground, tried to calm him down. But he did apply pressure around his neck, and he did die. Nearly faces nineteen years in prison. Why? Because he's white. I mean, that's the reason. And this is unfortunate because justice is supposed to be blind. But there are subtle distinctions, right? This is where when you look at it from a legal perspective, and let's pretend that we are lawyers, Daniel Penny, to my knowledge, Buck, correct me if I'm wrong, was not directly attacked physically by the guy that, that he is put true. into That is a distinction, hole, yes. Basically, yep. right? So there hadn't been a physical attack. If there had been then his defense of putting him in a chokehold, I think, would have been 100% uh, okay. But let me just say this. the, uh, the What I've read about the, uh, the individual who had the charges dropped is that, again, he was attacked, but he used a knife. Intent matters here in some way, right? When you use a knife to defend yourself and you thrust that knife to try to stab someone, it is reasonably... Uh, uh, expected that a severe injury in the person that you are stabbing could occur. It's lethal in force. Dan- if you're stabbing yes, someone, lethal it's lethal That's force. Right. Yeah. In the Daniel Penny case, and you correct me if I'm wrong on this, Buck, but when you subdue someone by putting them in a chokehold, the idea is not to kill them, right? Like you are just trying to render them uh, not able to continue to make a threat. So lethal force was used in response Let's be honest, based on this story, a punch, which typically is not lethal force. Usually when someone punches you, the idea that you would stab mm. them back is an escalation in that uh, in that defense mechanism. Whereas the chokehold, to me, both of these guys should be not charged. But if I were going to charge one of them, the guy who used the knife, to me, would be engaging in a more violent act 
than the guy who tried to put somebody in a chokehold. Just just some of the details here. Um, the uh, Williams, who is now walking free, and and just to reiterate, I think that is the right decision in this case. This is the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office that was weighing in on this one. Um, Which, to be fair, Buck, his mom, the Williams mom, said that Daniel Penny shouldn't be charged either. So she's I, been consistent yes. here as well. Do you have that? Yes. Quote? I mean, to, to her yes. credit, she's saying both of these guys are trying to make to protect themselves and make the subway safer. There, you're starting to see this more and more where. New Yorkers in general, of white, black, races, Asian, Hispanic, of all yep. backgrounds, they're like, we just all want to be safe on the subway. Yep. They don't want, they don't want white people being assaulted. They don't want black people being assaulted. Asian, Hispanic, they, you know, New Yorkers, we want everybody to be safe on this. They have that right to not be in this country. Look, I know it's never going to be perfect. There's always going to be criminals in any society. You know, 8.5 million people is going to be some. But it's far too common. It's far too regular. And we're seeing this, right? We're all aware. The, uh, Wadrago, uh, Udreago, I'm sorry. It's one of the, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Udreago came up to, just to be clear, came up to Williams and said something very crass to his girlfriend. So he initiated an aggressive exchange with the girlfriend. And then Williams said, Hey, you know, basically don't say something. Don't, don't, don't say that. And then Odreago started trying to choke Williams and punched his girlfriend in the face. Uh, you know, every guy listening to this knows this situation, you know, it's, it's all bets are off time. If, if some, if a man is punching your girlfriend, your wife, your sister, you know, your female colleague in the face, you got to do whatever you got to do to intervene and stop that right away. And I just look at this and I say to myself, you know, Jason Williams, he's a, he's a young black man. And New Yorkers want Jason Williams on their subway car. They want a guy who's going to stand up for himself. They want a guy who's going to stand up for his girlfriend. Like, this is, you know, he's minding his business. He's trying to just go about his day. He didn't start any problem with anybody. And he stood up for himself and somebody else. And someone lost their life in this. But you're not allowed to try to choke and punch people. Daniel Penny's also someone that people want on their subway, as you point out, including Williams' mother. Yep. The disparate treatment here is very hard for people to ignore under the circumstances. I think that's right. And and again, we've said this from the beginning. The only reason anybody knows Daniel Penny's name is because he's white. I'm sorry, I said Jason Williams. I'm going to say Jordan Williams. Pardon me. There's Jordan Williams is his name. The only reason people know Daniel Penny is because he's white. And the only reason that he was charged with a crime is because he's white. I mean, this is the exact example of Lady Justice not being blind, right? Alvin Bragg is charging Daniel Penny because he's a white guy who choked a black guy. And by the way, if this uh, guy on the subway had also been white, this wouldn't have been a story. If the guy who choked yeah. this guy had been black instead of uh, Daniel Penny, it wouldn't be a story either. It's only and, a story because a white guy did it to a black guy. And, and you, you know, Williams, you look at the, the backgrounds of these individuals, Williams, no criminal record of any kind yep. whatsoever, never been in trouble with the law. Yet he knew that he had to carry a knife on the subway because of exactly a situation like this possibly rising. Couldn't count on the authorities to keep the subway safe enough. The other guy, career, you know, career criminal, lots of arrests. It's never a surprise when these things happen. You know, it, you it doesn't come out don't of nowhere. Hit a woman, Buck, out of nowhere, right? If you're going to hit a woman, you're typically going to have had a criminal history in your past. Just just tossing it out mm. there. Most people out of nowhere don't suddenly decide to strike women. It, it's typically mm. something that somebody who has a violent criminal past is doing.
Yeah. Jordan Neely punched a senior citizen female in the face, broke her nose in her eye socket, and that was one of many, many times he was arrested. But the city of New York decided they didn't want to punish him too harshly. We'll close up here uh, with a few of your calls. And uh, actually, we, you know what? We have something on the on the on the light lighthearted. Side. We need light-hearted. something lighthearted. Yes, I can ask you this. This is a good intro for who is the greatest SNL t- Saturday Night Live talent of all time. Don't answer it. We're going to okay. come back to it. Your greatest Saturday Night Live talent all time. All right, famed economist and best-selling author Nomi Prince is out with a new warning. She says that a group of financial elites are plotting a drastic action, unlike anything we've seen since 1971. The White House, the World Economic Forum, even Bill Gates are all involved. According to her research, your ability to spend, borrow, save, and invest could soon be restricted with the push of a button. Our financial system is about to be transformed in a way that would have been unthinkable just a few years ago. And it all starts next month in July. Bank of America is calling it inevitable. If you've got any money in a U.S. bank account or retirement plan, get all the facts at disappearingdollar.com. You may not like what Dr. Prince has to say, but at the very least, you should be prepared when events take a turn for the worse. That website is disappearingdollar.com, disappearingdollar.com. Go check it out today. Paid for by Rogue Economics. Get to know the guys outside the issues. Sunday Hang with Clay and Buck, a new podcast. Find it on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.